Welcome to Bizval, where we make business valuations simple. It's a party in the front and business at the back. With a set of straightforward questions for you to answer, our clever algorithm runs the numbers and dishes out an approximate valuation of your business. We don't claim that every valuation is a perfect answer, but in practice, valuations are both an art and a science anyway. And we know that because our team has years of experience in investment banking and valuations. What we do know is that we are making professional valuation methodologies accessible for entrepreneurs at an absolute fraction of the cost of hiring professional services firms. Our 80-20 approach means that an 80% accurate valuation can be achieved with 20% of all the potential inputs, making this a powerful tool for entrepreneurs and for accounting firms looking to service their clients with something a little bit different and perhaps a little bit more interesting than just the annual financial statements. The Bitval podcast is our way of introducing ourselves to you and explaining why we are doing this. We will also be discussing some of the intricacies of the model, which manages to be simple yet advanced at the same time. We also hope to bring you plenty of practical insights to help you create value in your business. From me, the finance ghost, welcome to Bizval. Welcome to the second Bizval podcast. In the first one, we did an introduction to the people you'll be hearing from today. So it's myself, the finance ghost, and it's my partners in Bizval, Howard Blake and Graham Stephen. So go back and check that out if you haven't listened to it yet. And in the second show, we're going to take it a little bit more technical, but we'll still be sure to do it in a way that you'll understand because that's really what Bizval is all about, is taking the mystery of valuations and actually helping ordinary business owners understand them and get an answer that looks reasonable in the context of their businesses. And we'll be talking more about what the model is for, so the types of businesses that we've built it for, as well as just some real world stuff around how to actually increase the value of a company uh, based on these financial concepts, which always sound so fancy and difficult to understand. But to be honest, they really aren't. And you'll probably find that many of the techniques you're using already to run your business are actually tying in perfectly with the way the model seeks to uh, recognize that value. So Howard, when we were chatting just before this, uh, you, you, you had a really great little saying there around when someone comes to you with a business, what do they need before you can help them? I'll let you, I'll let you tell it. Oh, ghost, it happens so often. People, you know, they look at you and they always think you're so lucky because you've started a business and they, they want some advice. And, and then invariably there's a funding discussion that normally, I, you know, I need a couple of million to get going. And the first question I ask them is, do you have an income statement? And if they give me the blank stare back, I can't help. If they haven't managed to take their idea and monetize it either through selling goods or services, we can't really help them. So I think the longest distance in this world is between an idea and the first couple of dollars you bank. And, you know, as long as you sold one, you can sell a billion. There's nothing stopping you. So... That income statement is all critical. Otherwise, it's, it really is just a dream, and we're not in the business of angel capital or dreams. So that's, I think, is one of our cornerstones around when we built this. We, we can't help you value an idea. We can't. Yeah. It's just impossible. But we can help you look at the value of your business if you have a, an income statement with a bit of history behind it. And what's actually, it's a great concept is, you know, the, the distance between the idea and monetization. And actually, the further that distance is, the more venture capital you need along the way. And the more the valuation metrics that are used are going to be based on all kinds of concepts that are actually quite unrelated to finance. It's going to be the team, the skills, the tech, who that tech might be sold to one day. I mean, some businesses are built purely for sale based on a clever piece of tech. 
and they may never really monetize it themselves. I mean, we've seen lots of examples of this. Some businesses never get to a profit, yet they get sold for plenty of money to big groups who are just looking for that specific piece of tech, right? It's funny how they end up being called unicorns, eh? Yeah, exactly. Mystical unicorns. So that's not really what our current version of the model is about. And it's something we want to do in future. So, you know, to be clear, we're definitely not knocking this area of finance it's a fantastic and it's a fascinating space, this venture capital world, but it requires a very different approach to valuations. I think, Graham, what we're doing is something more based on the sort of typical SME getting a bit larger type of business, right? Absolutely, Ghost. I mean, maybe just to extend that analogy that Howard was alluding to a bit earlier, you know, if you take the concept of we're building a house. Okay. On the one end, you have this notion of wanting to put a settlement on Mars. Okay. And people who are wanting to do that are able to raise massive amounts of money, billions, to go and put somebody on Mars. But the reality is, is that you know that's some place way in the future. Yes, it's a big, it's a grand idea, and people might be willing to invest in that. And on the other other end of the spectrum, you've got somebody who's perhaps building a house or building an Airbnb, for instance. It's far easier to value, you know, what a house is going to cost. One to build the house, you can cost that out. And then secondly is like, what can you sell that house for at a point in the future? And, you know, I think as we discussed today, some of those techniques, you know, maybe that's something we can come, keep coming back to. You know, if I use a very simple example, you know, if you want to sell your house, how do you value that? You look at the, the area that you're in, you look at the size of the house, you look at the fixtures and the fittings, but ultimately is somebody else prepared to pay a particular price? Now that is sort of like an own use, let's call it house or asset, but you could have exactly that same house which has got three guest cottages on it. And those guest cottages, for instance, can now generate an income, you know, whether they're an Airbnb or you're running a little guest house out of that. And the value of that house may be very different to the value of a house which has just been built for you and your family to live in. It could be the same house, it could have the same walls, it could be in the same suburb, all of that. And I think when it comes to valuing businesses, you know, we're looking across that sort of spectrum. I guess the spectrum we're playing in is the valuing of the house that you're going to live in or the house that you want to sell to somebody else, or perhaps the Airbnb or the guest house that you built. We're not dealing with the, we're going to build a settlement on Mars kind of thing. Yeah, the venture capital approach would be, this is my house and it's great, but one day it could be a fantastic hotel and even a casino. Value that. <laughs> you know, and I've had these conversations in practice, Graham Howard, I imagine you have as well, where someone says, oh, but here's an example of a business just like mine in the U.S., and look, it's sold for 30 times revenue. I can't understand why mine is only worth two times revenue. Now, there are multiple very good reasons, mm. starting with, is the price of 30 times revenue even remotely realistic? I mean, you don't have to look too far to find some crazy examples, particularly in the US. Uh, this is not a macroeconomics podcast, but over the pandemic, the amount of money printed in the US has been extraordinary. It's created this huge asset price bubble. And the problem is you can't just extrapolate that and say, oh, this time it's different. You know, my business is now 20 times more than I ever thought it was, et cetera, et cetera. People have crashed down to earth hard with that. I mean, if, you, if you're feeling bored, go and draw a share price chart for Zoom and you'll see what I'm talking about. It, it shot up during the pandemic when everyone was using Zoom on this like base assumption that everyone's life will now suddenly be on Zoom and we'll all be paying customers and they will suddenly become this incredibly valuable business. Zoom's a good company. But it was never worth over $500 a share or more. I think it got to nearly 600 And now it's crashed way down to just over $100. So, you know, jumping into that then at the time would have lost a lot of money. 
And this is the point with valuations. Valuations look through the story and the fluff. Yes, that's important. For sure it is. But on the whole, most businesses at the end of the day are valued based on their cash flows. And startups are not because the cash flows are not there yet. So that's why startups and venture capital is so difficult because you have to back the idea and the dream and believe that the monetization will come based on metrics like total addressable market and what share can I get of that? It's a different world. So Graham, absolutely right. You know, what we're here to do is to take the sort of standard SME type business, the mom and pop shop, but also bigger. Sometimes they've got 20, 30, 50, even a hundred employees. You know, these can be meaty sized businesses without a doubt. Take those metrics and actually value them in a way that is sensible. And I think our model tends to be slightly conservative and that's important because in our experience, most entrepreneurs tend to overinflate the value of their company. Isn't that true? Gosh, I also think something that's so important is that we're not going to take into account sentiment. I mean, it's one of the things we've heard of but never seen, right? Like a ghost. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Except for today we've met one. But uh, that's that, that sentiment piece, this is not like a publicly traded share where there's a whole lot of sentiment driving up a price. This is about, as you say, looking through the fluff, looking at those numbers, looking at what the business is really worth and giving people a peg in the ground in terms of value to start a discussion. It might be a capital raise, might be a sale. It might just be your curiosity. I mean, we look at the, the lateral application. We look at firms of accountants, for example, and how lovely this would be to attach to your annual financial statements on a year-on-year basis or even every six months to see how your growth is tracking and a little bit of strategy to help that along. And suddenly something that was just anecdotal is now scientific and trackable and traceable, and you can start tracking your value. And I think it, it brings a whole new dimension to the entrepreneurial mist. Exactly. And speaking of scientific, there's a lot of science that sits behind this. And people forget that. They think, you know, we say it's easy. It's kind of like Swan Lake. You know, it takes an hour to perform or whatever it is, but it's the 10,000 hours before that that made it easy. So valuations are not easy. If you go on to Google and you start with, you know, can I value my company? Well, it's not a great idea because you're either going to find articles that are incredibly complicated and you'll be completely lost an hour later, or you're going to get something that is so silly and simple that you're probably doing yourself a massive disservice. And even if by some statistical miracle it's actually accurate, no one's going to take you seriously anyway because there's no science that happened behind that. So what we've done is we've built something that applies the science and it does it at a price that means it's not worth your time to go and try and figure it out. You know, you focus on running your business and let us take our years of experience and this valuation tool and help tell you what we think it might be worth. And I think just to add to that point around sentiment is you know, the science is absolutely key here, but the science is constructed in such a way that it's easy for you to give the inputs into that, into that science or that model. Um, but it also does do away with two things. It, it does take the sentiment out of the equation. I mean, how it spoke about that. But also the concept of what have you already spent on your business is also something linked to sentiment. So again, to use that house example, because you've spent 5 million rand or a million rand building your house doesn't mean you can sell it for a million rand. Um, you know, if you, if you spend 5 million rand on a house in the wrong area, you might be lucky to get 500,000 rand for it. You know, so, and I think it's the same with businesses. You know, it's around how do you apply you know, your, your, your capital and your knowledge and your IP. And I think our model... 
tries to, I wouldn't say ignore the sentiment or, you know, the capital that's already been invested in, but it kind of looks at where your business is now and where can it be in the future? And, you know, what are the fundamentals telling telling us now about the potential uh, and the reality of that business? And it discounts the sentiment and the uh, historical, let's call it capital that you've injected into that business to an extent. We need to distinguish between sentiment and just macroeconomics here, because stuff like rising interest rates and risk and all of that, that is firmly taken into account in this model. I mean, there are many techniques to do that, and we apply them. You know, this model uses the exact same things that I was doing in my investment banking career for years on end for the biggest listed companies, for transactions that you would read about on the front page. The stuff that's gone into this model is not any different. I think if we move on to some of the ways in which we think businesses can actually increase their value, and some of this is based on what's in the model, obviously, and then some of it is more, you know, touchy-feely stuff. And it really starts at the top. It starts with... Revenue. At the end of the day, if whatever asset you've built is not capable of generating revenue, then you've either built a piece of tech and you better hope that someone values it more in their business than in yours, or you're going to be going hat in hand for money for a long time and eventually that money is going to run out. So revenue is the lifeblood of any business. And I think, Howard, you made a point to us earlier around the importance of cash, and I couldn't agree with you more. It's not just revenue. It's revenue that you actually collect and bank. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been involved in in a lot of businesses and uh, had to assist where there's a growth strategy that's been lost. And they could have the most incredible audit committee and all the other committees that and subcommittees that you have in a business. If you haven't got revenue, if you haven't got a sales force or a mechanism to drive sales and create revenue, you don't have a business. Like you say, you can spend the rest of your life funding it or you're going to have to close it. People often overlook that. And... Obviously, if you're running a book, a cash book, and you're running a business based on a cash book, it's very obvious. There's either money or there isn't, and you're either spending more than you're earning or you're not. I think it comes back to those fundamentals always. Those fundamental things, you can't mess with conventional wisdom, and you can't mess with things that have been established over time. And revenue is a key driver. And without growing revenue, what have you got? A business that's depreciating. And and that's a problem. And, you know, you've got to have strategies and you've got to be able to be focused on that revenue number and deliver sustainable growth. And one of the questions in our model is around revenue concentration, which is a key risk measure. Graham, you've seen lots of businesses in your life. Some of them have got 500 customers and if one of them canceled tomorrow, things would still be okay. Some of them have got five customers and if one canceled tomorrow, there would be retrenchments. Absolutely. And I mean, just to bring that to a real personal example, previously I was employed in corporate. I had one salary that came in every month and I built a lifestyle around that one salary. I could be retrenched and three months from now I find myself without an income. Um, the reality in the kind of business that I'm involved with now, I've got four or five clients, each paying me something in terms of the advice that I'm giving. You know, and, and, and the likelihood of all five of those firing me at the same time. Um, hopefully low. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully quite Very. low. You know, but, uh, but, but the reality is if I, I've, I've experienced that you know, through the pandemic. You know, I started my initial business six months before the pandemic, and I found that it was wonderful. I was never kind of stressing and saying, Flip, is, is my company going to downsize? And, and I knew that if one or two of my companies that I was working with had some challenges, you know, one, one of the others would absorb that time or, 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 or that consulting work that I was doing. So, yeah, I, just, I mean, in, in a practical way, I think the same applies to, to businesses. You know, would you rather be selling 500 widgets at $1 each or one widget at $500? You know, so, you know, it's the same revenue number, but that concentration and the makeup is, 
is critical. And then are you selling to one customer or 100 customers? That makes a fundamental difference. Um, you know, and those are some of the things that we look at when we, when we value businesses. Yeah. And what the model does is it basically can't get all the details about your business because otherwise it can't possibly be a model that is affordable for small businesses. But it asks you enough questions that we get an idea. And we can then make adjustments based on some of the things we've seen in practice. A business with more customers and, and less concentration risk, quite frankly, is just more valuable than a business that has concentration risk. And the pandemic certainly taught us that. I mean, a friend of mine had a, a, a business in the wedding industry and he had a bar. And you would have been really hard-pressed to think of one event that can ruin both. And yet the pandemic arrived. Another friend of mine, his wife, had a yoga studio in New York and he had his income here. And uh, again, a pandemic can very quickly ruin both those incomes. How would you ever have thought of that? Now, these are black swan events, and it's all about probabilities. And obviously, you can't plan for that kind of stuff. But in any business, you can certainly build a, a diverse revenue stream, and that's a really good idea. But revenue is not enough. It does not help if your unit economics suck. And what that means is sort of the economics to you of selling one more item. In other words, if you don't make a profit on each item you sell, it doesn't matter how many you sell, you're either going nowhere or down even faster, which is clearly not the correct direction. So profitability is another big focus. It is. And uh, there's an interesting analogy because in an industry I've been involved in for many years, the contact center industry, you start building rules of thumb. And the one is, and it speaks directly to that point, is that every empty seat in a contact center steals the net profit of two profitable seats. And that's a fact. And it's it's those kind of metrics that that make you realize it in time and experience that you have to make sure that absolutely everything you do has a profit attached to it. You know, I think some of the best lies ever told us, but this is GP positive. Well, <laughs> we've heard of GP positive, but no profit. And what are you doing? Again, look at the cash book. The money's not there. You're eroding whatever you, you're doing and you're wasting your time. And I think it's being able to be honest about that. That's, that becomes a critical point. And the questions we ask in the model induce the honesty. Exactly. And that GP positive point is great. I mean, the so Monster Beverages, which is a brand we all know, actually started by South Africans, and uh, which not everyone knows. And in their latest earnings call, so we're recording this in March 2022, if anyone wants a date stamp on this, in their latest earnings call, they talk about how they bank profits, not margins. Now, they've been a bit cheeky because they're under huge margin pressure and they're really hoping that you won't notice too much. But uh, there's some truth in it as well. And it's especially for smaller companies that aren't under the scrutiny of being listed with lots of professional investors. Some years you're happy to bank profits, not necessarily margins. And uh, if there's no bottom line profit, then there's no... Cash, And that brings me neatly to you know, the next point in this journey is you've got your revenue in the business, you're getting it from different places, that's wonderful. You know, you've got margins, but working capital, I mean, Graham, we've seen businesses run out of money. Absolutely. You know, and working capital is all about can people who owe you money pay you quickly enough before you have to pay those that, that you need to pay money to. For most of you probably listening to this podcast, the monthly payroll cycle is, is that crunch point. You know, So you could be owed a million bucks from debtors. Um, and if you might have a 200,000 rand you know, wage bill at the end of the month, those debtors pay you late, those employees are gone. You know? So um, that's what working capital is about, knowing what the, the sort of uh, troughs and dips and the cycles of your, your business are and being able to make sure that you've, you've got the money in the bank when you need it. And that's absolutely critical. And, and, and there are ways to kind of manage that. You know, one, one way to increase the valuation of your business is to become far more efficient 
you know, if you can manage that working capital quite tightly, you can increase the value. And there's a bunch of metrics that we look at to see whether you're good at managing your working capital. And if you are, invariably, you're good at doing a bunch of other things in your business as well. So it's a very good lead indicator of the real health of a business and the value of that business. And part of our model that is really important to raise here, it's a, it's a more technical point, but it matters, is we use something called a discounted cash flow methodology. And there are other service providers in the world who have done these sort of online valuation models. And we've looked at them. And from what we can see from the outside looking in, in some cases, it doesn't really look like they do these discounted cash flow valuations. They just work on profit multiples and examples of other deals in the market and then say, well, on average in this sector, the multiple is six, so yours is six. But Yours might be six, your neighbors might be six, but actually you're collecting your debtors much faster. You are running off lower inventory and you're taking longer to pay your creditors than your neighbor next door. Now there's no way if that is sustainable that your business and your neighbor's business are both worth 6x. And that again is a technical point, but this is the kind of stuff that our model tries to do and these are the techniques that get used in listed company valuations and we believe we've brought some of them to the extent we can into this tool. Yeah, Ghost, it's, you know, it's interesting as the discussion evolves here, we can start to see the depth of what we're building. So it's not like uh, we've got a little bit of clever, clever mathematics sitting in the back of the, the model and it's just going to cherry-pick values and multiples and spit out a number. There's a lot of understanding and experience that's gone to what we've built and there's checks and balances that the user will never see. And uh, based on that, I think we have a really enviable product that, that although it's, it's inexpensive and it's easy to access, it's going to give very credible and accurate results like we've seen in the test phase. We've really beaten it on the, on the testing side. Mm -hmm. and, and we're happy with those results that we're seeing. But, you know, likewise, we also want to hear from our clients what their experience is and whether we can refine that model further. We're going to learn a lot from, from our users and their journeys and be able to build an even better product as we go along. Yeah, anyone who's ever run a business will know that it's an iterative process, so it's no different at BizVol. And I think one last point I want to touch on in this episode is the more touchy-feely stuff. So this is stuff like succession planning. Um, you know, this is really important in a business. And again, it's quite difficult for us to try and capture all of these concepts in the model. But one of the questions, for example, talks to how many employees are in the business. And we adjust the valuation based on that. I mean, I'm the walking living example, right? As the finance ghost, it's a very cute business, but it's me. If I get hit by a bus tomorrow, there's nothing. There's literally nothing. I mean, there's no one else doing this. So that's one extreme. At the other extreme, you have a scenario where a business has been built for sale and it's ready to go. You know, the entrepreneur is playing golf three days a week, going on holiday all the time. That founder is not really needed there anymore. In fact, he or she is probably getting in the way. So in a business like that, you've got great succession, that's an easy business to sell or an easier business to sell. It's never easy. And this is some of the stuff that is important to think about when you take the valuation result you get from the model and you compare it to the real world conversations you're having around the business. Because the model might give you a number that is lower than what you've been offered. But if you think about this and go, okay, so on average, a business with my numbers would come out at this kind of value. I've been offered more and that's actually because I've done a really great job with succession or I have multi-year client contracts with lots of clients, that revenue is a dead certainty. Those sort of concepts would give you a better offer. 
Likewise, if you've come out with offers that are lower than what the numbers are telling you, then there's probably a message in that as well, which is people are concerned about something. Either it's your risk management or it's your dependence on the founder or there's something in the due diligence process which doesn't look great or client contracts are not watertight. There's lots of reasons why the deal value may differ from what the sort of technical or academic answer is that the model is giving. I'll give you a very uh, practical example of that. A few years ago, we sold a stake in one of our, our businesses that had contracts with every single major enterprise in South Africa in the financial services space. And we had contracts that were indefinite, but terminable on 60 days' notice. What do you have? Yeah. You have 60-day contracts, right? Yeah. So you think, well, I'm really in this good position. And it's that kind of reality. And if people point that out to you, and are able to help you. It's just like the entrepreneur. You say to him, what's your succession plan? And I can promise you 90% will tell you key man insurance, right? So they think, no, I've stemmed the risk. Yeah, that's your estate plan. Yeah, that's right. And they get that confused. And I think our model is a sobering model. It will definitely help you identify those things and improve them, be able to take it forward. Absolutely. I mean, and and Ghost, you've spoken about how it is. The succession thing is absolutely critical. You know, in my advisory business, I work with a lot of businesses where the owner or the founder will say to me, Graham, I can't take leave. Things don't happen when I'm not here. Evaluation, it needs to take account of those things. And often how this tool could be used is you might have evaluation, but to realize evaluation, it might mean that you actually have to invest in a 2IC or an operations manager. So, so to actually realize the value that the model spits out, especially in the case of succession, it might mean that you actually need to invest in having succession in place. Um, and that's a, that really is a soft issue which um, our listeners grapple with on a daily basis as well. Entrepreneurship reminds me of that Coldplay song. You know, nobody said it was easy. Nobody said it would be this hard. And that's, uh, <laughs> that's exactly how it goes, right? So I think that concludes the second episode of the Bizval podcast. We would refer you back to the first one in which we gave you some more insights into our own backgrounds and why we've started this business. And thank you for listening. And thank you for trying out the valuation. Again, we are a business just like you, constantly looking to improve, constantly looking for feedback. So please let us know what you think, what the answer is telling you versus offers you've received in the market. This stuff really helps us make the model better. And that's for everyone's benefit as entrepreneurs. So thank you for listening. And we hope you look forward to the next episode.